All right, if you have your Bible, please open up to Acts chapter 9. That's where we're going to be at. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the sound booth back there. We replenished our stash back there, so you can grab one of those. Or if you use your phone, that's the Bible app. We have a live event you can follow along with us. Acts chapter 9, if you use one of those hardback Bibles in the back, we're on page 917. So there's, there's these moments in our lives, moments that happen to us, whether we cause them or not, but there are moments in our life that can either break us or shape us, right? Things that happen, and we have, the, we have an opportunity to allow that to, to break us down, allow that to kind of derail where we're headed, or we can, let, we can allow that thing to shape us. We, and we have to actively participate in that, right? And uh, when I was, uh, you know, as a child, as a young, young child, I didn't grow up really going to church a ton. And when I was in seventh grade, somebody invited me to church. And at that point, um, I heard the gospel for the first time, and it changed my life. I, I surrendered my life to Jesus, and I began to run towards Him. And one of the things that happened in that process was I had this really uh, desperate hunger to know the Word of God, know the stories of God, know about God. This God that loved me enough that even in my uh, recklessness, He still pursued me and rescued me. And I would sit at church like you guys are today, um, and I would just like fervently take notes and uh, ask questions and go to all the Bible studies that I had an opportunity to, to the point where like if my friends were talking by me, I would get frustrated with them because I would look at them and say, it's not fair that you already know all of these stories about God and I never learned them. Like Jonah and the whale might be boring to you, but I don't know what, I don't know how the story ends. I don't know anything that happens. I didn't grow up watching Veggie Tales like you did. And so like I was frustrated with my friends. I'm not joking. Like it was, it was super annoying. And um, I would just, I craved wanting to know more and more and more. And when I was in ninth grade, I had a youth pastor who uh, took um, some time and he invested in my life. And he uh, kind of put his arm around me, and he began to show me how to walk with the Lord. Um, and, and that looked a, a whole lot of different ways, right? He showed me how to um, pray. He showed me how to read the Bible. Um, he showed me uh, how to share the gospel and then challenged me to actually share the gospel. Um, he taught me theology. He taught me about God, information, but also application. He showed me how to preach, showed me how to teach, and it was really, really impactful. There was a, a significant amount of impact that he left on my life because of what he invested in me. But it wasn't just learning that I did with him. One of the things that happened when someone chooses to invest in you as an individual, um, I realized that someone cared about me. I realized that this person is taking time out of their life to invest in me. He must see something in me that's worth you know, pursuing and worth investing in. And I, and I, you know, found value in that. And what we're going to see here in, in this uh, passage that we're looking at is um, Saul, he just came to know Jesus. And he had to deal with some stuff. And he spent some time learning about God. And he had people that invested in him. And that's kind of what we're going to think about uh, this morning as we read this passage. So Acts 
chapter 9, starting in the second half of verse 19, it says this. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by, providing, or by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, uh, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went, out, he went in and out among the, them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down uh, to Caesarea and uh, sent him off to Tarshish in the Church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. So what we know about Saul is uh, he came face to face with Jesus on the way to Damascus and his life was changed forever because of that. Right? Um, and uh, what we can tell about what happens, this story kind of glosses over it really quickly because Luke is telling you the story of Paul. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes of this experience, right? And, and, and basically the timeline goes, he um, came face to face with Jesus in Damascus and had this conversion experience. And then he went to Arabia, this is what he says in Galatians 1.17, he goes to Arabia for approximately three-ish years. He was um, in, in Arabia spending time basically looking at his life, all the things that he's known, his, um, his worldview was shaped by him being a Pharisee, right? Uh, all his knowledge that he had was kind of directed towards one Way And he had to rethink all the things that he had been taught, all the things that he had learned, all his experiences. He had a new worldview, a new lens to look at the world around him with. And so he had to process all of this information and he had to get all of his, 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 his kind of his head right. And so um, he uh, went back to Damascus. What we see it is in his early ministry, he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And uh, from what we can gather, a lot of this time was spent um, learning um, about God through this new perspective, through this new lens, and readjusting um, his view of the world around him. Alongside of that came a sense of uh, this oppression that Saul would experience through his, whole, through his whole life, right? He escaped Damascus in, the, you know, in a basket that was lowered outside of a wall, which all the kids are like, that sounds really cool, except for if you get caught, you die, right? Like, that's not as cool. Uh, and then he goes to Jerusalem, and the people he was trying to connect with uh, feel like he's a spy and he's a fake, and like you're just trying to do this to get to get us. 
And they were able to, you know, uh, he had to have someone vouch for him. And then in Jerusalem, he had to leave there because people wanted to kill him. And he ended up going back to his hometown of Tarshish. I mean, and, and then what we know about his life is he went from town to town um, on all of these different journeys because God kept moving him, kept moving him, kept moving him, and kept moving him. And he had this kind of sense of these journeys uh, that there was a sense of suffering, right? There was a sense of trials that were going on in his life. And what we know about his conversion experiences, um, maybe one of the re- main reasons that Ananias was okay with going and praying for Saul when he was blind was because Jesus told him in verse 16 that he will suffer much for my name. So he's like, all right, well, this guy has hurt us, so he's going to suffer much. And we see a lot of the suffering happening in Saul's life, and especially right at the beginning. But we know is um, he didn't let these obstacles in his path uh, divert him from what he was called to do. And so what we're going to look at today is kind of his experience, these first three years of his life. These kind of formative years that kind of created the ministry that he'd go forward. He does, he does two things. He has this time where he intentionally learns. He has this time when he intentionally shares. So uh, a time to learn. Uh, the thing that we need to understand about God is he desires our heart, but he also wants our mind. He doesn't just want you to just say, yes, I'll follow you with my heart, but not engage him mentally. Like, he has given you a mind. He has given you the mind that you have to be able to think about him, to be able to challenge the things that you know about God. He is not afraid of your questions. He welcomes them because the more we ask questions of God, the more deeply we know God, right? And that's completely fine. And what we see is, uh, is Paul, Saul's first three years are really devoted to theology, learning about him, um, he met with uh, these uh, disciples in Damascus and, and were really like intentionally asking people to mentor him, right? Um, and, uh, you know, he met with Peter in Jerusalem for 15 days um, and, and just picked his brain, picked his brain. Uh, he he kind of had this purposeful discipleship. And what I think is funny about this is uh, when you look at kids, like really young kids, probably like under... 10. They have no like sense of pride as it p- pertains to going up someone and asking them if they'll be their friend, right? Like you see this all over the place. They'll just like go up on the playground. Hey, will you be my friend and play with me today? And they're just like, yeah, sure. Like, let's do this. But something happens like as we get a little bit older, like we don't ask people to be our friends. Like my wife uh, is afraid to even friend request people because this like deep seated sense that on Facebook you might reject her, right? Like we, I don't know what's up with that because I think she's awesome, uh, but but like we have this sense that like we don't put ourselves out there like a like a kid would. And I, I have a friend that recently looked at someone in their life and like intentionally sat down with them and said basically in more words than this, teach me your ways. And I thought, and that is this great picture of what Saul does here. He sits down with these different disciples and he's like, hey, talk to me about life. Talk to me about what you guys are doing. How can I learn from you? Right? They looked at, you know, my friend looked at this person and said, hey, just like, help me. Like, I want to learn how to do this. I want to learn how to do this. I want to learn how to do this. I think you're awesome. Can you teach me your ways? 
This Sometimes you have to seek people out in order to grow spiritually. Sometimes we have to like, ask someone to invest in us in order to grow spiritually. And that takes a sense of like humbling ourselves and saying, hey, you know what? Maybe I don't know it all. Maybe I do need some help here. And we see Saul doing it multiple times in his first three years of his life. And you see him doing it all throughout his life. He had a mentor and he was a mentor. Sometimes we have to seek people out in order to grow spiritually. Asking them for help is not a bad thing. It's actually a really, really good thing. It's very biblical to have people investing in one another. This is what Jesus did. This is what He expects from us. He desires your mind as well as your heart. Um, and he, he used what He knew. And He explored what He had already rejected. He grew up. He was a Pharisee. Like He was the man. He had a stout uh, legacy in front of Him. And yet... He had rejected so much. The Old Testament that Saul had memorized is the same Old Testament that's in your Bibles today. So he had this kind of very solid foundation, but the way he interpreted all of that was through this different lens that he currently has. It's kind of like, have you ever put a puzzle together that uh, like you start putting it together and you realize that like the box top that is on the puzzle that you're putting together does not match the puzzle that you're currently putting together. And you're like, man, I don't, this, this doesn't match. Like for the longest period of time, Saul was putting, he had all of these pieces that God has given him with his education and his experiences and his passions, and his desires and all of these things. And he was putting this puzzle together, but he was looking at the wrong box top. He was looking at this box top of religion and elitism and all these kinds of things. And on the road to Damascus, God said, hey, no, no, no. Here's the box top. Here's the new lens that you need to look at all of these things through. And so he retreats and he begins to look at his whole life. And he says, oh, now it's a lot easier to put this puzzle together looking at what the picture is going to eventually look at, look like. He has the right box top to work through all of his theology, all of his learning, all of his education, all of his experiences. So he used what he knew, and then he began to explore all the things that he already rejected. He knew what these Christians were saying and believing, but he just immediately rejected it because it didn't fit in with the, the worldview that he had created for himself. This lens that he looked at the world, it didn't match with that. But now... He has a different lens and he's looking at these things and he's like, oh, this actually, what they were saying, like that, that conversation I had with this guy when I was yelling at him, the things that he said to me actually are a lot more true than I realized at the time. I initially rejected his message because I thought I knew what he was saying. But now that I have given it a second chance, now that I actually thought about it practically with my mind and, and, and put this up against logic and truth, like these things actually do make sense. And everything became more clear for him. Uh, the puzzle began to go together the way it's supposed to go together. And his worldview began to shift. And what I, what I want to challenge you as a church is like so often we allow people to shape our worldview. 
You, you allow your Facebook news feed to shape the way you look at the world around you. You allow um, kind of the caricatures of the things and the groups that you disagree with um, around you to shape the way you interact with them. But if you're wrong, like you're rejecting things that are actually really helpful. And so if your worldview lens is something that you have created, it's probably a bad lens. But if your worldview lens is the Word of God, this is the only thing that should be shaping the way we look at the world around us. Not what our favorite, favorite author says. Uh, it became clear to him. One of the things that you can tell is that right at the very beginning of this passage, in verse 20, it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. The only time in Acts that that phrase, that Jesus is the Son of God, is used. Why? That is an Old Testament phrase. That is a phrase that they use throughout the Old Testament for the coming Messiah. Saul killed people for thinking that Jesus was the Son of God. But he used his knowledge of the Old Testament. He began to, now that he has the proper lens that he's looking through, he began to say, like, oh man, like this prophecy is true in him. This prophecy is true in him. All of the things that I know about the coming Messiah are actually true in Jesus. He is the Son of God. And it takes someone that's an expert in the Old Testament law to be able to truthfully say that. He'd spent this time to learn. And he used everything that, he, that God had already invested in his life. Now, with the right lens to look through it, it shifted his perspective. And, and God doesn't haphazardly put you through things and send you to places. He has a plan for all of it, right? So he had this time that he intentionally learned. He sought out people to invest in him, but he also did study on his own and looked through his life. But then God sent him, and he had this season, this time of sharing. This time of sharing, and um, what we see about his time of sharing is his passion was met very quickly with persecution. Saul was a passionate man. Even as a Pharisee, he was a passionate man. So God didn't say, hey, now that you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be completely different. No, God wired him a certain way to be a passionate person. And so as he walks in his, in his newfound life, he's still a passionate person. And that passion was met very quickly with persecution, right? Like in Damascus, his first real place that he started doing ministry, run out of town. Jerusalem, run out of town. Over and over, he's getting run out of town. And, and his passion is met with persecution. Why was that? Because he had a story that he could not help but tell me. So when my wife and I got engaged, um, one of the fun things about like that kind of few months right after engagement, especially when you're together, because the guy doesn't wear the ring, the girl wears the ring, but like when you, you know someone's engaged, you're like, let me see the ring, and then the, everyone's like, uh, you could you get a little bigger. I'm like, I'm a pastor, guys. If you want to give me a donation for the ring fund, I would be fine with that. But then they're like, so tell me, how did he do it? 
Over and over, we told the story of our engagement. And it was a pretty great story, all right? Like, cool things happened. There was, like, magical things in the air, right? And there were some people in this room that were actually a part of that engagement. And we had a story, and we shared that story over and over. And we actually, you know, especially when you have a good story, like, you work that into conversations, don't you? You're just like, uh, like, she'll be talking, and like, slowly her hand comes up in the air, and they're like, Oh, I see that you're engaged. But, oh, yeah, let me tell you. And so, you like worked it, like, when you have a story that you're passionate about, like, you work that into the conversations. Saul had a story that he was passionate about. His life was changed, and he began to work that story into the conversations. But there was a problem with his story. The problem is the gospel is offensive to the people that are hearing it. It's an offensive message. What the gospel says is, hey, you've tried your hardest to live your life as best you can, and you failed miserably. You are not good enough. The world wants to tell you, hey, you're an awesome person, and everyone gets a trophy, right? What the, what the gospel tells you is, hey, you swung, and you didn't even come close to hitting the ball. You failed miserably. There's no way that you can fix yourself. That's how bad off you are. And that message can bring forth some, uh, if you're sharing that message, it can bring forth some people that are a little frustrated with you because they bought into the lie that the things that they are doing, the world that they have created for themselves, the toys that they have bought, the house that they have created, the life that they have made for them and their family is the best possible life that they could have and they are doing well they are a good person when you look at that person it says everything that you've built your life on is a lie and it's false and you're failing at life and they say look at my retirement look at my bank account and you look at that retirement and you look at that bank account and say hey that is all worthless that can be offensive because the gospel it's offensive. The gospel says no matter what you've tried to do, you can't do it on your own. And so therefore, Jesus had to come and do it for you. Not because you were so good, but because He is so good. And there's nothing you can do to earn His favor, but He freely gives it to you and to me. And that all we have to do is, is simply accept His free gift that He gives to us put faith and trust in Him, and we can have a new life and we can be made right with God. Not because of our efforts, not because of our name, but because our God is a God that is so, so good and pursues us even though He knows that we will walk away from Him at one point or another in our life, even though He knows that we will turn our back on Him and choose ourselves time and time again. He will continue to pursue us That's why the world might think that his love is reckless, but he knows exactly what he's doing. That's an offensive message. If you don't understand the free gift that comes along with that. So he had a story to share, um, and, and his passion was met with this persecution. And he proved... And he disputed people all over the place. There's a problem with the way some of us do this, though. Because for some of us, we know that the gospel is offensive. 
And so therefore, we try to lighten the load. We try to take off a little bit of the harshness. We try to make it seem a little bit easier to hear. The problem is, if we add anything to or take anything away from the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. It might be your gospel. It is not the gospel. Your gospel will lead to destruction. Your gospel will lead to wandering away. Elitism, your gospel will lead away from God a hundred times out of a hundred. But the gospel is the only thing that could save. And as Saul disputed and proved time and time again the gospel, there's this sense in our mind, hey, if we can get together a smart enough presentation that our friends and our family will come to know Jesus like I have. And I want you to pursue that. But I want you to understand that it's not our presentation. It is not our faithfulness. It is not anything that you can do to bring someone to Jesus. It is him and him alone that brings forth salvation. He has to stir the hearts. We have opportunities to be vessels, to be a part of that heart stirring, but it's God and God alone that stirs the heart of the individual. We can pray that God continues to stir. And hey, we're faithful to open up our mouth when he asks us to. And we're hopeful to get into healthy conversations where we actually listen to the person talking to us as opposed to shouting at them. That's a good thing. Asking questions of the people that we're interacting with, those are good things. But we have to trust that God will move in their lives. We get to be a vessel. But he is the one that does the saving, not us. That's why Paul in Romans says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that leads someone to salvation. Not me. Not my eloquent words. And then ultimately, through his life, he allowed God to move him. Over and over again. He's moving. And he has opportunities to go to Damascus, Arabia, back to Damascus, Jerusalem. I mean, all over, you see his journeys. You go to the maps in the back of your Bible. It's Saul's journeys, and he is going all over the place, right? You're like, man, what kind of cruise line does he have miles on? Because he is getting some good distance on this. He's going all over the place because God continues to move him. And when God moves us, we can either be frustrated at God moving you, or you can have faith in what his plan is for you. He will move you either by force or by faith, but he will move you because he will win. And what we see is through his faithfulness, the church enters into this time of peace. And why does this happen? I truly believe this is why it happens. Because People of the church embraced being a mentor and having a mentor. They embraced what true discipleship looks like, investing in someone and then having someone invest in you. So here's my question for you, church, today. Who are you investing in? Who are you sharing life with? Who are you trying to help guide using the things that you've learned to make these people around you understand the world better? And maybe you feel like, well, I don't have anything to give. I guarantee you, you have way more to give than you could ever imagine. So who are you investing in? 
And then the second question is this. Who is investing in you? Do you have someone, or are you too prideful? Do you have someone that can look at you and say, hey, like, how, are you, like, how is this going on in your life? Don't be so prideful as to ask someone to invest in you. And I don't care how old you are, I don't care how young you are, you need to have someone investing in you and you need to be investing in someone else. Because this is the way the church advances. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I, uh, I'm grateful that uh, you have called me. I'm grateful that, that uh, it's not because of what I've done, but it's what you have done in me and for me. And Lord Jesus, today, my prayer for us as a church is this, that we can be the kind of people that pour out into those around us, freely and willingly pour out. Just like the gospel came to us, we share that good news, share that life with those around us, as well as we allow people to pour into us. So Lord Jesus, give us a person to do both of that for us today. Allow us to be a disciple and be discipled, just like you've called us to do. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.